Oh, of course the cats decide to fight immediately <laughs> after I press record. It's kind of you know funny. What? Go ahead, sorry. You know you know what I remember George Carlin from? What? The, the was it Sunny Town Station or whatever it was, oh. the Thomas the Tank Engine oh, show. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think What was that called? I don't know. Um I think my first experience with him was probably Bill and Ted. Was probably what? Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted. Oh yeah. Shining Time Station. That's uh, what it was called. I only watched a few episodes of it. I wasn't a big uh, train kid. I wasn't like a big transportation vehicle kid. I wasn't either, but you know what? I was a big PBS PBS kid. (laughs) Yeah. Came on after the Mr. Rogers. Yeah. I I remember him from that. And I know there's another movie that I'm not thinking of right now. But yeah, I I liked that guy. Yeah. Good vibes. (laughs) What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, you know, the more and more frequently we talk about Drag Race on the podcast, the more and more I'm going to out myself as reacting, as being the one reacting to people on Twitter when I react with Drag Race (laughs) gifs. Yeah, no, I think everybody knows. I hope so. Man, what is happening? I got a really cute dress and I'm excited to not work for two days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get Taco Bell. And two more notes because that's all of our life now. Yep. (laughs) Pretty much. I have a big week coming up. I know. Very exciting. Philadelphia. I'm going to be in you. Some deformed uh, human uh, casts. Yeah, going to the muter. And I would also like to go see Ben Franklin's grave. There's also a ghost tour that happens that I'm kind of interested in doing. But we'll see. We'll see how much time I have. But yeah, I'm going to see some good people. Gonna gonna have a good time. So, yeah. I've always wanted to go to the the muter. Me too. We tricked, uh, Jordan will remember, we tricked uh, our anatomy teacher. Um, if we talked about things for long enough, we would get her off topic and she would remember something from a movie or a documentary. And then we would watch the documentary instead of doing work. And we watched a documentary on the meter. That was a good Love time. Love that. Because it just horrified everybody in the class except for like the four of us who were like too interested. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. <sighs> I try not to think about high school. What a bad time. I have some good memories, but it was not a great time. I didn't have like, a I didn't have a bad high school experience by any means, but I had good outside of school high school experiences. Like being in a band was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but within the confines of the uh of the high school itself, I remember going up a flight of stairs and it wasn't a big flight of stairs. It was just like our our building was on a hill, so part of the couple of the classrooms were in a slightly lower level. And I was wearing a cool plaid skirt that I got from the hot topic back when people were afraid to go into hot topic. <laughs> And I was walking up the stairs and some guy behind me was like, whoa, you should wear a sign that says wide load. And I was like, you know, 14. So I like cried. <laughs> yeah, I never have, shockingly, didn't ever have a problem with bullying really. Except for that one girl who I don't remember why she threatened to beat me up, but didn't happen. I, I mean, I'm not anybody... shocked. I'm honestly shocked that I didn't get threatened to get beaten up more. But like, it only happened one time, and then she didn't do anything because I had a bunch of juggalos show up because I told a friend of mine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I did have the bully the bullying problem, uh, both for being fat and being in a band because the band that we had uh got a lot more notice and recognition from people than some of the other bands that were uh in the high school 
Uh-huh. And they didn't like that. And they liked to make sure we knew that because we were but women and how dare. <laughs> so let's let's get started, though. I don't want to I don't want to focus on this. <laughs> OK. Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss the strange and unusual. This is episode 94 of our series, Seeking Out the Weird, the Unexplained, and the Devious from Around the World. I'm Casey. And I'm Raya. Uh, Like we've been talking about this week, it's Mormons. Yay! Woo! I can't tell you how many times I've been singing uh, from the Book of Mormon (laughs) soundtrack. I just want to let you know. (laughs) Don't forget, you can find us at all of the various social medias. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and of course, patreon.com slash strange unusual. If you are are interested in hanging out with us on the internet that's where you can find us and we will list our screen names in the show notes and they will definitely be shouted out again at the end yep that's gonna happen okay so <laughs> um yeah so this whole time i'm writing these notes i'm in my head going i got the golden plates <laughs> as soon as you said the book of mormon i just got turned it off stuck in my head yep yep like a light so I- just go click 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 <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to look up a couple things because I was like, are Mormons the ones that can't dance? Are they the footloose people? No, Mormons can dance. Yeah. So they can't have, they don't drink alcohol or, or caffeine though. Yeah. So no tea or coffee, which is just the work. Yeah. Or decaffeinated tea, which why even at that point? Yeah. Like, what's the point? <laughs> Herbal tea? So what are you talking know. about today, Casey? Oh yeah, that's the, we gotta this, move this train along. I am talking about a gentleman Choo-choo. by the name of Mark Hoffman, uh, who was known for his forgeries of historical documents. And I've heard much, much more. Just a few things. Um, I am going to be talking about Arthur Gary, Arthur Gary Arthie? Bishop, a, a serial killer. Oh, shocking! <laughs> All right. I tried to find something lighthearted. I tried to find something a little bit more digestible after last week, but you know, here we are. Here I've we got are. I've got a, a funny um special little segment at the very end though. It's so. a surprise ending. We go out with a, a literal bang. I want you to know that I titled this episode Marky Mark Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> so if I referred to him as Marky Mark throughout the episode, that's why. Well I should probably go first. Yeah, it sounds right. As we as we previously discussed. So let me start with the wee-woos. We've got Mormonism for the first one. Yeah, the Latter-day Saints Church is its own trigger. Racism, obviously. Uh, Manipulation, bombs and explosions, and the gory after effects of those uh, bombs and explosions. So let's get into it. Starting with a bang, ending with a bang. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to start with just a brief overhaul of what you need to know about the Mormon faith before I get into this, because some of the documents that we'll be talking about will need some some history. Okay. So Mormonism. Uh, in 1829, Joseph Smith was led to some gold plates by an angel named Moroni, which is now known that that book is known as the Book of Mormon. Uh, in 11... What? What did I write? <laughs> Hold on. Been there. <laughs> okay. In April of what 1830. <laughs> <laughs> what date did uh, I decide this was? <laughs> 
It's it's October. Everything is in October. Yeah, everything is in October. <laughs> there is no other in month. In April of 1830, uh, they formed the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which, in my opinion, is just too many prepositions and is abbreviated to LDS. People weren't so thrilled with the ideas that Smith was throwing around, which makes sense when you consider consider the time period. So, like, this is 10 years after the Essex sank, if you remember that episode. So we are not very far into the future. The U.S. had just purchased Florida from Spain. Refund, please. And Thomas <laughs> Jefferson died a few years earlier. This is pre-Trail of Tears. We haven't seen the last witch trial yet. There's a lot of backwards thinking going on, and the Christian Bible is behind most of it. Like always. Like always. Some of the ideas that they did not like were things like Smith portraying himself as a god for one, saying he was a prophet, because there's only one god, or a trinity of gods that are one god. I don't know. But we don't like it. All we know is we don't like it. Other ideas not up for debate were polygamy, Smith's anti-slavery vibes, because really, who needs slaves when you have 30 wives? But yeah, Joseph Smith was (laughs) anti-slavery. Anti-slavery, but didn't they uh, not admit black people into Mormonism until like 1970? (laughs) We'll get there. (laughs) Okay. Well, the thing is, so Joseph Smith is from New York, and this is, uh, we're leading into the Civil War here, because it's 1830s. So that's, that's around the corner. But it was Brigham Young who took over after okay uh, let me get there hold on so those who believed and followed the faith were essentially mobbed and forced out of the state that they were in so not completely unlike amy carlson and the gang in hawaii because joseph smith was basically going i'm god bitch (laughs) and am i saying lds is like a cult fucking maybe Look, the LDS picked a fight with me personally when I found out how much money they raised to try to get Proposition 8 passed in California. Oh, yeah. They're like the whole reason why it it, it worked. And the failure of their... Uh, on, on their part to accept accountability for the traumas faced by those who suffered from their endorsement of conversion therapy. But that's another episode. Uh, so in 1838, the Missouri governor Lilburn Boggs issued an extermination order for the Mormons stating that they quote, must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary. Okay, exterminated is a little far. That's a little far. <laughs> this guy owned people. What do you want? This resulted in an event called Hans Mill Massacre, where 18 people from the Mormon community were. Fun fact, this extermination order was actually not, like, lifted until 1976. Oh, wow. People didn't follow it, obviously, well, yeah, up obviously. until then, but they didn't actually remove it until 1976. So Joseph Smith ended up being killed by an angry mob in June of 1844 in Illinois, after which many of his followers were like, fuck this. Enter Brigham Young, who was pro-slavery and had 55 wives, no joke. And he was just the fucking worst. He said things like, "Uh, sleeping with a black person was a sin so great that even Jesus on the damn cross couldn't get you into heaven and that you had to atone with blood. Yeah, this is a cult. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He he led those who were willing to follow him to Utah, the Mormon promised land. Uh, And this is a woefully short explanation, but you all have Google and I'm not your theology teacher. So uh, because it is such a young religion coming up on its bicentennial, actually, the history of its prophet is really heckin' important, as you might suspect. 
enter into the story Mark William Hoffman. Born December 7th, 1954 in Salt Lake City, Utah. You already know what this episode is about. He was raised in the LDS church. He was a sixth generation Mormon. His mother was born in a polygamist family well after polygamy was renounced by the church publicly. Her grandfather fled with hundreds of other Mormons to Mexico in the 1890 like migration to avoid having to give up polygamy. His family wasn't wealthy, but his dad did work briefly as a mortician, which I thought was pretty cool, of course. <laughs> he wasn't known as a great student. I think I read that he graduated his class. He was like 530 something out of 700 kids. But they had hoped that uh, he might one day become a general authority, which is another name for the 85 dudes in charge of the church. You have the president, prophet, seer, and revelator. He's like the top dude. You have two counselors sharing the office of the first presidency, counselors of the 12 apostles, council of the 12 apostles. There's 12 of them. And then the first quorum of 70 of the 70. And those are 70 people. <laughs> it's very easy to follow. <laughs> Mark didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, he did like stage magic, electronics. He had an interest in coin and stamp collecting because he's a heckin' nerd. And he ran cross country. He spent two years as an elder missionarying mission, whatever, I'm leaving it, in Bristol, England for the England Southwest Mission. And he claimed that he converted several people. It was also during this time that he read a book called No Man Knows My History, The Life of Joseph Smith by a woman named Fawn M. Brody. This book notably was written by a woman which was already like wait we can't a woman and she had drifted from her lds lts lsd, LSD. <laughs> i wrote L I wrote lsd faith lds faith <laughs> uh so she she drifted from her faith and went down uh searching this mofo like she was like fuck this i don't this isn't right this is weird i'm gonna i'm gonna tell people i'm gonna write a tell-all book i'm sitting here did. i'm like the church of lsd is that uh the manson family <laughs> yeah probably another so while some viewers accuse her of treating joseph smith in this book with hostility saying she basically called him an imposter who lied enough that he started to believe what he was saying others said that she was actually too generous to smith and she later actually revised her book to add a psychoanalysis of Smith, shifting Smith from a con man to a conflicted man. Regardless, like anyone who puts a prophet under a microscope, she was excommunicated. And so nobody would have been pleased to hear that Mark Hoffman was reading this book. According to author uh, Robert Lindsay in his book, A Gathering of Saints, A True Story of Mormon Money, Murder, and Deceit, this was where Mark started to find a fascination with old books and really get into Mormon history. And he was on the lookout for something that would help him get rich. After Mark's mission, it was back to Utah where he attended Utah State University as a pre-med student, but he studied history more than anything in his downtime. So he was looking at um, historical books and documents in the library. He would spend like hours. In the book I mentioned, it was said that he actually had some words with his mother criticizing the LDS practice of hiding historical documents that might embarrass the church, which she defended as the documents might undermine people's faith. It was, <clears throat> it was claimed that he had brought brought up his doubts to both instructors and bishop, but was basically told just to blindly follow and stop asking questions, flipping to uh, flipping the script to insinuate something was wrong with him for questioning the word of God. In an essay by Hoffman that was included in the book I mentioned, uh, the student is taught to accept nothing without first questioning. Mormonism, on the other hand, teaches that the spiritual things are to be accepted on faith. 
At the church, at church, the LDS student is taught both verbally and by more subtle and equally effective means not to question the church for doubts are inspired by the devil and faithful members of the church never doubt. Indeed, I have talked to a young church, two young church members who have the idea that thinking is actually a sin. This is important later. Yeah, I had a feeling. There was even a group of researchers led by Leonard J. Arrington, the first general authority church historian, historian vying for primary forces and scouring previously hidden diaries and documents. They were printing historical articles for the LDS magazines and even books for those outside of the church. This practice, though, was met with criticism and like spies would take what they considered to be heretical writings to the apostles and say, look what this guy wrote in his magazine article that he's going to expel or, you know, tell people that we we are like this or that this is a thing that happened and we can't let him do this. And people were losing their jobs for it. By 1982, the LDS archives were closed to those. In 1978, God changed his mind about black people. And black people were allowed into the church, the LDS church. In 1979, Mark Hoffman married a home economics student named Dory Olds, who was the perfect Mormon wife and wanted nothing more than to be a mother and homemaker, which is totally fine. And you're allowed to do that. But you're also allowed to not do that. And that's feminism. And in 1980, Mark made his first big discovery. That April, Leonard Arrington was approached by a former student named A.J. Simons. Uh, He had been talking to Mark about the 1668 King James Bible that he had just purchased. The Bible allegedly had been inscribed by a Samuel Smith, who was potentially the great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather of Joseph Smith. Mark claimed that when he opened the Bible, he found a folded piece of paper glued between two pages, which he was able to cut out of the Bible, but wasn't able to open. And he was asking Simmons for advice on how to open that document without harming the fragile parchment. Simmons told Arrington that the signature on this piece of paper not only looked similar to that of known signatures from Joseph Smith, but also included what looked like Egyptian hieroglyphics. There was also a message that read, These characters were diligently copied by my own hand from the plates of gold and given to Martin Harris, who took them to New York City, but the learned could not translate it because the Lord would not open it to them in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah written in the 29th chapter and 11th verse, Joseph Smith Jr. I will say Joseph Smith Jr. does not know how to use punctuation, so I'm sorry the way that came out. (laughs) Uh, this was called the Anton transcript, and in ni- 1824, oh my god, stop, okay. <laughs> In 1828, it was a document allegedly delivered to the classic scholar, Charles Anthon. Uh, And so like the story was that Martin Harris took it to him and he was like, I can't read it. And the prophecy mentions, and the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned saying, read this, pray thee. And he saith, I cannot for it is sealed. And no, I don't know which of the million versions of your Bible I got that from. Sorry. Maybe you should have one, you know, since it's the one true book. I don't know. Sorry. Uh, the authenticity of the document you think uh, was determined. <laughs> I lost my spot because I chuckled at you. The, the authenticity of the document 
uh, was determined by a man named Dean Jesse, who was the best known expert of Smith's handwriting at the time, to be uh, authentic. He said, it is impossible to conclude that anyone other than Joseph Smith wrote this. The LDS announced the discovery and purchased the document from Mark for $20,000 worth of artifacts. Uh, the first edition book of the Book of Mormon and various old coins and currency. And I was like, $20,000 doesn't seem like a whole lot. But then I went to like the converter for what that would be now. Yeah. And that's over 60 grand. So uh, there is a scholar or there was a scholar by the name of Barry Fell who claimed to have deciphered this transcript, the it, the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, though there was some controversy, controversy, <laughs> controversy. You always have a hard time with that word. I do. <laughs> Uh, over this and I'm not going to get into that for the sake of brevity because I already have 12 pages to go to go through so after that Hoffman dropped out of school and he's like I'm going into the document business because business is good about a year later Hoffman came forward with a document that stated Joseph Smith wanted his 11 year old son Joseph Smith the third not Brigham Young to be the successor to church leadership the letter, allegedly written by Thomas Bollock, an LDS clerk from 1865, uh, claimed that Young had all, Brigham Young took all the copies of that, like, blessing and had them destroyed. The writer conceded that he believed Brigham Young was the true leader of the church, but that he wanted to hold on to his copy of the blessing in case anything happened. Uh, so, the LDS archivist didn't like the price that Hoffman came to him with. And Hoffman was like, uh, this basically says that our prophet was not the one that the prophet wanted to be the prophet. Uh, so <laughs> why are you not? Okay. So this is a bad look for the church to have to openly admit that the founder of their faith did not want this particular leadership in charge. And he expected to snap, snap this letter up is essentially what, and he only wanted five grand for it, which, you know, not terrible in my opinion. Yeah. If you're, if you're trying to hide something. Yeah. So when they declined, not once, but twice, this motherfucker instead took this document to the RLDS or the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is recently rebranded to the Community of Christ. Now, I will briefly explain some history and the differences between these two churches so you understand why we are feuding with the RLDS. <laughs> the LDS Church are the Mormons who went to Utah with Briggy Young. And yes, I did call him Briggy. The others were trying to claim the title of president and people were fractured. So the RLDS formed as the reorganization of the church. And in 1860, the 27-year-old Joseph Smith Jr., the third, uh, would take over as president of the RLDS. Which is what the at this letter alleges he wanted to have. The yes. original. Okay. Uh, so both of them are saying that we are the real yeah. Mormon church. Like, and then you have the FLDS, which is a small subsect led by a human shit stain named Warren Jeffs, but that's also its own episode with its own set of fucking wee-woos that I'm not getting into right now. Fair. Uh, LDS is based in Utah. RLDS is based in Missouri. The Quora answer to this question of <laughs> what's the difference between LDS and RLDS is that the LDS are more Mormon and the RLDS are essentially trending more Protestant these days. In Gathering of Saints, Lindsay also says that the RLDS was formed by those who were opposed to polygamy. So I don't know if you find that's important, but I wanted to let you know. So because the RLDS had always wanted Joey III to be the successor, but had nothing to back that up on paper, it made sense that they would be like, please give us that document. And they were willing to pay for it. The RLDS broker he was working, or with, sorry, the LDS broker he was working with was trying to lowball. He was trying to get 
Mark to come down and didn't actually expect for him to go to the RLDS. And he was like, well, if you want it, or if you don't want it, maybe I'll go to the RLDS and uh, I'll get one of their book of commandments, which was worth like 40 grand. And the broker was like, if you think you can get that much for it, go for it. And then was pissed off when he did. <laughs> The so look, the general authority the when you fucked around and found out yeah right <laughs> so the general authority is super not thrilled with the idea that they're so and there's this frenzy because they don't want their quote enemy to have this piece of information yeah wheeling and dealing happened but the lds won the document and uh gave mark more document or artifacts estimated to be around t- another twenty thousand dollars however things went down in a certain type of way mark didn't ever not meet with the people from the rlds and he definitely gave them a photocopy (laughs) (laughs) so things are getting out uh i suspect i i didn't look completely into all of what he confessed to uh I, i i suspect he probably mentioned this at some point but he basically tipped off journalists i think and a reporter called the broker that was in the exchange for the RLDS and was trying to get information, ended up spilling the beans that Mark sold it to the LDS. And that guy was pissed because he was like, I'm about to give you so many things. You're going to be so rich. Why did you give it to that church? But Mark is still trying to like play both sides. So the LDS realized that they weren't going to be able to keep this a secret. And they ended up gifting the letter to the RLDS because the news was already out and it was damning to the LDS. So Mark Hoffman was called a rock star amongst the the document dealers. People were like, this guy knows how to track things down. He can find things. He found various letters from important people within the LDS community, including Joseph Smith's mother, talking about the faith and a contract for the first printing of the Book of Mormon. More damning materials to the bigwigs in the LDS who wanted no one to see. But he wasn't only doing LDS documents. He was also dealing in signatures like he found things from George Washington and Andrew Jackson and Poe and Abraham Lincoln and Miles Standish and then some like he had a honkin' list. He handled a previously unknown work penned by Emily Dickinson and the ultra-rare Oath of the Freeman, a colonial work which only had 50 copies. It was the first thing printed within, it was the first like work printed within colonial America. And that one was supposed to be worth a cool $1.5 million. Casual. So he claimed that he found things based on tips, tracking down descendants, and stamp collectors who had old letters and that they were saving for the stamps essentially, but didn't care about the contents. Yeah, and not fl- because you care more about the stamp than the $1.5 million letter. Okay. Well, he didn't, f- they didn't find that in a letter, silly. Well, like but the- still, like, yeah. you care more about a stamp than you do the $5,000 letter or whatever, you know? So there's a Netflix docuseries based on this uh, story called Murder Among the Mormons. And so a friend of fellow document enthusiast named Shannon Flynn said that it was normal in a business like this to keep your sources a secret, kind of like reporters do. Yeah. But the thing about those discoveries, all of those discoveries that I just listed, is that they weren't real. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I told you he was a forger at the beginning of the episode. He was forging an unknowable number of documents. I just closed my notes like a fucking idiot. <laughs> unknowable number of documents 
Uh, and he was clever enough to intermingle his forgeries with legitimate materials. So he was actually finding things and selling them, but was slipping forgeries in between. Yeah. So he was remaining credible even while duping so many. He was he was the original Red. Red. From Animal Crossing. Oh, Red. Yes. I thought you said Red, like from Good Mythical Morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, the original Reds. Where it's yeah. just like, you know, it's a 30% yeah. chance it's real and a 70% chance it's fake. New York document dealer. Oh, wait. Oh, I missed I missed a part. I got to tell you this. So he would later say, uh, Mark would later say that when he was t- like as young as 12, he started manipulating old coins to look even more valuable than they were. And when he was 14, he claimed that one of his forged coins was deemed genuine by the U.S. Treasury Department. <laughs> so, Yes. When New York document dealer Charles Hamilton uh, was asked, he called Hoffman the most skilled forger the country had ever seen. I mean, yeah, he has to be. He's he's fooling all of the like highest ranking members of the Mormon Church, like and, be- people and- who who potentially did handle a different version of this document or whatever, you know, like- right? And he was able to extort so much money from the wealthiest church in the world because if you didn't know. The LDS Church is the wealthiest church in the world. They're worth like hundreds of uh, billions of dollars. Wow. And I mentioned earlier, he didn't like the secrecy of the non-affirming documents being hidden away. So he basically forced the LDS to come out publicly and admit that there were things they didn't want to talk about and say, our prophet didn't actually want Brigham Young to be the president, which must have felt like a huge victory for him. And at this point in his career, I don't really hate him for that. No. I mean, I honestly like don't hate him for anything he's done so far however it's not long before this plan backfires and and you will hate him eventually yeah i'm sure in 1984 really hoffman found something become a villain right that's that's right that's <laughs> right in 1984 hoffman found something that was called the salamander letter or the white salamander letter why has it got to be white <laughs> because they're mormons <laughs> The letter was written by Martin Harris, the same Martin Harris who delivered the unreadable glyphs to Anthon in the Anthon transcript prophecy. And the letter claimed some pretty terrible things for Mormons. It claimed that Joseph Smith was speaking to spirits, hunting for treasure, practicing folk magic, and had been led to the golden plates not by the angel Moroni, but by a spirit who transformed into a white salamander. So he took some peyote... Yeah, 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 yeah. From what I gathered, the church thought that the price of the document was too high. And so the solution became for Hoffman to sell the document to a wealthy collector and church member who would then donate the embarrassing document in place of a tithing. Because if you don't know, I think the tithing for the Mormon church, like you have to give the Mormon church 10% of your income. So enter financial advisor, Stephen Christensen. Brent Metcalf, who made the introductions, Uh, said that Steve had a genuine passion and interest in the history of the church, uh, but felt that there should be more intellectual transparency, not unlike Mark Hoffman. And Steve Christensen had like a crazy collection. He had like 13,000 books. The letter was authenticated. The purchase was made for a modest $40,000 in increments. It was supposed to be like $1,000 and then $9,000 and then ten grand every six months so that they had time to research the document. 
Christensen's plan was to purchase a document, fund his own authentication of it, and make sure that it was placed within the proper historical context so that they could anticipate criticism of the work, but he never had any intention of hiding the letter. He noted in his plan that he would expect a commentary to be published alongside the contents of the letter to explain said historical findings, and his hope was by stretching out payments, Hoffman wouldn't go out and start talking about it to other people. He even had Hoffman and his associate sign a contract saying they wouldn't speak about it. He promised that no one else knew of it, its existence, and the lie detector determined that was a lie. That good old He'd actually, LDS NDA. That's right. <laughs> he actually had shown it to people actively working against the Mormon church, and the word was getting around. Those people, though, uh, or through those people, the Salamander Letter was all the rage in the papers and it was getting publicized and Christensen tried to hire a lawyer to act against such publications like Time Magazine but was unable to do anything about it because of the First Amendment. The church was backtracking like, oh, well, we know it's from that time, but we don't know. It could have been like somebody forging something in that era because there were so many anti-Mormon people in the era that would want to undermine the church, yada, yada, yada. Christensen then hurries up and donates the letter to the church, commenting that dealing with Mormon documents was a dangerous business. The letter did not come under a great deal of scrutiny or did come under a great deal of scrutiny. And there were several anti-Mormon scholars who actually doubted its authenticity as much as they wanted to believe that it was the (laughs) fucked up history. They were like, I don't know if this is real. Too good to be true. In August of 1985, Hoffman claimed to be in talks to buy a collection of ye olde Mormon monies and a collection of diaries and that were written between 1831 and 1838 and letters that were going to cost him nearly two hundred thousand dollars which today would be like half a million bucks and this cache of items was known as the mcclellan collection he borrowed money from alan rust or alvin rust a rare coin and document collector and owner of rust coin and gift shop One of the Hoffman's associates claimed that the collection contained a letter from Joseph Smith's wife stating that it was actually one of Joseph's brother who met the angel Moroni and found the golden plate. After the salamander letter, this letter would have had potential devastating effects on the Mormon church. William McClellan had been an early apostle of Joseph Smith, but broke away from the faith and then swung that pendulum hard in the other direction, dedicating his time to working against the Mormons. So nobody wanted to hear from William McClellan. And this collection would have included critical journals and incriminating documents. Christensen and Hoffman spoke about the collection and Christensen was like, this belongs in a museum. I mean the church. And so they took it to LDS leadership where it was said the church was interested in buying the collection for $300,000. Hoffman told Rust in the church that the church was asking for complete privacy while they examined the collection. So even though he was a silent partner, they couldn't talk about things. And while I was reading Lindsay's book on this, it seemed that Mark was going through this pattern of like uh, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul sort of deal. Like, please invest in me so I can get this definitely real set of documents. And then he would have to go pay off somebody else that he had taken an quote investment from. He was up to his eyeballs in debt and allegedly over like a million dollars in debt. And he was writing bad checks and people were catching on to what was going on. In an effort to buy himself some time to create the McClellan Collection, which he was already basically going to sell to the LDS Church, allegedly, uh, Hoffman chose violence, literally. <laughs> Another thing that's important to note here is that I there's a 
part of this where Steven Christensen, the one who's been helping uh, Hoffman, his business is going under. He's having to file for bankruptcy. He's also up to his eyes in debt. They're losing tens of millions to investors. So there's a potential for legal and possibly violent action coming for him. The first bomb went off at the judge building in downtown Salt Lake City on October 15th, 1985, a little after 8 a.m. Reporters compared the event to something you'd associate with, quote, the Middle East or Northern Ireland, which I was just like, that's gross. I can't believe you said that, but it's the 80s. Stephen Christensen had found a package in front of his door at the office and leaned down to pick it up. He was killed by the explosion and the secretary nearby was injured by shrapnel. The witnesses or one witness claimed that Christensen had held the package against his chest, which took the brunt of the blow when it went off. And the prosecutor described him as looking literally ripped apart, which is just horrifying. Yeah, that is not a fun visual. Yeah. The second bomb exploded about an hour later at the home of Gary Sheets, Christensen's former boss. The, the bomb missed its intended target and instead killed Sheets' wife, Kathy. There was a phone call later that day to the Salt Lake City Tribune where a man was reported as saying, I suggest you listen carefully. There's four more bombs from here to South Temple. The police had held a pref- press conference and were basically saying, we have people looking into the potential for this being a disgruntled investor, and reporters were even claiming that it was potentially a hit by somebody with Las Vegas connections. <laughs> the other avenue the cops were taking was the connection with the Salamander letter. Like, was this a disgruntled LDS person who uh, had a crisis of faith or somebody who knew a crisis of faith and was angry about this coming out? At the time Christian was having the letter authenticated, his boss, his boss Gary Sheets, was helping him fund that process. So that would explain why they were both connected to that idea. And Hoffman starts getting calls saying, if this is something to do with that letter, you need to get out, you could be a target, etc. And so Mark sends his wife Dory out away from the house and said, you and the kids need to go somewhere safe. And she went to be with her mother. The third bomb went off the next day, injuring Mark in his car, because after all of this shit that we've just talked about, it turns out he's a big fat dummy. It was reported that the bomb had been planted under his car seat, had blown off the tips of some of his fingers, he was missing a kneecap, and he had several severe burns and cuts. Jeez. The cops found the McClellan collection in the back of the car. The assumption was that this was done by somebody who didn't like all of these embarrassing letters and getting out. Uh, and not only, not the only theory, Lindsay mentioned one of the investigators actually suspected a ring of rogue homosexuals motivated by revenge. Okay. <laughs> Other document dealers. I mean, I want to join, but like. I know, right? I want to be the rogue homosexuals. Out for revenge. <laughs> Uh, Other document dealers and people who had worked with Hoffman and Christensen, like Alvin Rust and Brent Metcalf, were advised to get out of town and their homes were actually searched for bombs. The Temple Square was in lockdown. And now these were pipe bombs. And from what I've read, the one that killed Steve Christensen actually had nails taped to the outside of the device to increase its damage. Potency. Yeah. Yeah. While looking into potential suspects, a friend of Mark Hoffman that I think I mentioned earlier, Shannon Flynn, he was arrested in connection to the bombings because they had found a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook and an unregistered Uzi submachine gun in his home. But he passed the polygraph with flying colors and the popo had nothing else to hold him on, so he was eventually released. Mark healed enough to go home from the hospital like a month later, it was October 31st. A potential witness came forward and said, hey, I saw somebody at the judge 
building that morning. It was like 645. He was hanging around and I couldn't identify him. Uh, but he ended up calling him a clean cut man wearing a green athletic jacket and that he delivered a package wrapped in brown paper to Steve Christensen's door. Friends of Mark, like Brent Micklaff, recognized the description of the jacket as the type of jacket that Mark wore, oh. which led to the search warrant. So when the police showed up at the house, Mike's Mike Mark's wife Dory was like, "Why are we suspects? My husband was exploded." <laughs> Uh, and he had just gotten out of surgery, but they find the jacket as well as taking 30 other containers of evidence. Nothing indicated bomb making. Mark took a polygraph test and passed like suspiciously well. The The guy in the, in the Netflix series said, you know, a polygraph is on a scale starting from zero. And if it's negative numbers, it's more likely that you lied. And if it's positive numbers, it's more likely that you're telling the truth. And Mark had like a plus 14 and it was the highest score he'd ever seen. Wow. Uh, and people thought he was the victim and that the cops were going after the wrong guy and that there was no motive. Like, why would Mark do this? And why would he do this to himself? Yeah. So as they go through the evidence, though, at the time, they couldn't find anything that meant anything to them because they didn't. They were investigating an arson bombing situation, not forgery. The investigators eventually find this document for an engraving company with the name Mike Hansen. While they are investigating, they figured out that this is a pseudonym that Mark is using to make secret purchases, specifically engraved plates for currency that Mark was dealing in. This leads to what we suspect, like now now we think it might be forgery. And forgery is motive. The church ships the salamander letter to the FBI to determine authenticity. The document examiner, examiner uh, George J. Throckmorton, who is also Mormon, FYI. Uh, and if you watch the docuseries, this guy is the fucking best. He's like, I don't like people, so I like documents. <laughs> and I'm like, me too, dude. I hear you. <laughs> and he looks into Dean Jesse, the one who had authenticated previous uh, documents of Marx, and was like, you're a historian, not a document examiner. Sit the fuck down. And Dean Jesse was doing the exact same thing. Like, you look at bad checks and like stupid forensic shit you don't know anything about historical documents sit the fuck down and you know there's this back and forth and in the spirit of credibility because of his faith throckmorton actually called in a second forensic document examiner named william flynn uh no relationship to shannon flynn and so they start looking at all these different things the way the parchment is cut the way the ink is made how it spreads on the paper how the letters had been folded and the fbi lab reports back the salamander letter is authentic although lack of sufficient known signatures and writing prevented a definite conclusion no evidence was observed which would indicate forgery wow but the document examiners weren't convinced they put in 110 hours on these documents and actually the way that the ink crackled that told throckmorton and flynn that the fbi was full of shit mark had been using an iron galatanic ink made from, among other things, iron salts, tannic acid, iron galatanic ink. <laughs> but that did not set the same way that authentic ink of the period would. Compared to other documents of the time that Hoffman had no hand on, those documents did not have cracks in the ink. 
Now, I told you Mark was trying to sell the Oath of the Freeman for over a million dollars. This had been tested for authenticity by a cyclotron, and the paper had been reportedly genuine. The Library of Congress had studied the document and said they could not say for sure whether or not it was authentic. When it sold, Mark would be able to buy himself out of all the debt that he'd gotten himself into. Around December, investigators had started going to other engravers, asking them things like, did you work with this man? Are there any plates of these specific things? And they found somebody who purchased the Oath of the Freeman as an engraved plate named Mike Hansen. They said they had sold it to Mike Hansen, who had paid in cash, but was a couple of dollars short, so he paid the rest with a personal check. (laughs) On which the name was not Mike Hansen, but Mark Hoffman. One source I read also said that they found parts of the pipe he'd used for the pipe bomb in his trunk. With all the other evidence piling up, Mark was arrested on February 4th, hey, 1986, uh, charged with first-degree murder for both Stephen Christensen and Kathy Sheets, 23 counts of theft by deception and fraud. He was arraigned on, sorry, he was arraigned by Judge Paul G. Grant and locked up, and in January of 1987, in exchange for a plea bargain, Hoffman agreed to be interviewed to tell what and why he did, or what he did and why. I don't know why I wrote it like that. By his own admission, Mark enjoyed fooling people and felt power from his deceptions. Uh, and he was he would talk about the the coins when he was a kid and how that made him feel, you know, like if I fooled the treasury and the treasury believes it's real, then it's real. You know, like he got power out of that. During this interview, Lindsay describes that Hoffman actually seemed excited about talking about what he'd done, especially about the murders and was super casual and arrogantly talking about the construction of the bombs he made. And when his attorney, his attorney tried to wrap up the interview, Hoffman was angry that he could not continue to talk about how he killed people. I mean, that's good and healthy. Yeah. It said that he showed zero signs of remorse or guilt. On January 23rd, 1987, Hoffman was brought in front of Judge Kenneth Rigtrip and pled guilty to two counts of the lesser charge of second-degree murder and just two counts of theft by deception, including the forgery of the Salamander Letter and the fraudulent sale of the McClellan Collection, of which he did not own. It was said that the families of the victims also gave their consent to this plea bargain. They just wanted this chapter closed in their life so that they could move on. Hoffman declined to comment before the sentence was passed. He was sentenced to life in prison, and the judge said that due to the nature of his crimes, he would recommend that the Board of Pardons never parole him. He was allowed 30 minutes alone with his family to say goodbye, but he decided he couldn't face them and went to prison immediately. In August of 1988, Dory, Mark's wife, filed for divorce citing irreconcilable dif- in reckless ah fuck it you know what i mean (laughs) they didn't get along anymore yeah uh what was funny is in in the interview uh that he does uh in january before the plea bargain he says i think our marriage is likely to stay intact (laughs) get fucked mark and that december he attempted to take his own life via drug overdose but failed other other forgeries have since been linked to hoffman and there are many who think these forgeries could be discovered for years to come yeah i wouldn't be surprised and that is a story of this shithead mark hoffman who i think i think set out trying to do something i wouldn't say noble no but something that i don't necessarily think is evil per se no i would agree with that i mean i i think fuck the world's wealthiest church like yeah fuck that they don't pay taxes they don't do anything they don't pay taxes and they're trying to uh sway politics yeah with their money billions of dollars gross 
Did you ever see that movie, The Mormon Proposition? No. It was, I mean, it's basically a propaganda film against the Mormon church and for LGBTQ people. Because at the end, it's just like people talking about their horrific experiences. It The first like two thirds of the movie is them talking about the actual proposition and how they, they got it to pass and all this other stuff. And then the end, it's basically all the torture that people went through in conversion therapy. And like, I'm sure that is true and really happened. But the way it's presented it's definitely propaganda yeah (laughs) so it's a good movie but just go into it knowing that the language that they use and the uh the format it's told in is definitely uh skewed in a in a direction that i don't hate but (laughs) yeah a little fear mongery yeah all right well speaking of fear (laughs) uh we lose murder oh shit child murder sexual abuse of a child and mormons yep uh so arthur gary bishop was born in hinkley utah on september 29th 1952 and was the eldest of six brothers uh the family was raised as devout members of the latter-day saints or mormons and he was an eagle scout and an honor student pillar of the community yep we love a pillar around here um he also served as a missionary to the philippines um in 1978 he was arrested for embezzlement and given a five-year suspended sentence but he skipped town on his parole and fled to salt lake city where he lived under the alias of roger downs oh uh later on in that same year of 1978 the lds church would actually excommunicate him wow did they find out or was it just he was a shitty person as roger downs too um i mean i think that they they excommunicated excommunicated arthur gary bishop i'm assuming for the embezzlement charges as well as running away from punishment got it got it got it um while he was in salt lake city he would join the big brother program under his alias after his arrest uh, later several years um dozens of children at the time who were now adults would accuse him of abuse as he masqueraded as their big brother ew Ooh, pizza yeah there's pizza hold on <laughs> what's this oh is this my pizza all right go ahead <laughs> On October 14th, 1979, Bishop would kill his first victim, a four-year-old boy named Alonzo Daniels. Wait, how old? Four. Ew. Yeah, when I said child, I meant child. He lured the boy to the courtyard of his own apartment, promising him free candy. Um, Bishop attempted to sexually assault the boy and then drowned him in the bathtub, burying Alonzo's body in the desert. Nearly- like, no offense, my story is way uh, less like this than yours. <laughs> um, nearly a year later, in November 1980, while at a skating rink, he met an 11-year-old boy named Kim Peterson. His name was actually, like, Claude, and his middle name was, like, Kim something. Uh, let me see. Let me pull it up real quick. Claude Kimley Peterson. Uh, but I guess he went by Kim. Mm. Um, he lured the boy to his apartment as well under the pretext that he was selling a pair of roller skates that the boy could come over and try on and potentially buy. Um, yeah, I don't like that. Luckily, there were some witnesses who were able to describe the man that Kim had spoken with before he disappeared. They described him as being white aged 25 to 35 and bishop was actually 28 at the time so like right oh, smack in the on. middle of that yeah um and around 200 pounds with dark hair um bishop would go on to bludgeon kim to death and his body was buried close to alonzo's outside of cedar fort in the desert 
Bishop was actually frequently questioned in the disappearances, but was never actually considered a suspect in Kim's murder. Wow. Why? I don't know. I couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) I need to know. Um, A year later, on October 20th, 1981, he killed for a third time. This time he lured another four-year-old boy named Danny Davis from a supermarket to his apartment. Witnesses recalled a smiling man standing near the child, but could only give vague descriptions. I mean, how many descriptions are there for a white guy? Yeah. Um, Danny's disappearance launched a huge... And I mean, especially, like, if nothing seems weird. Mm -hmm. Like, just a guy standing next to a kid. That could be his dad. That could be his uncle. That could be a friend. You know, like, you can't just assume that every child is standing next to a, you know, like, a predator that's going to kidnap them. I mean, I can, but... (laughs) Well, you can't act on the fact that you want to assume that they're a predator. That's true. That's true. Um, so Danny's disappearance launched a huge search, actually one of the biggest in Salt Lake City history. Four teams of searchers went all over the city. They searched fields, mountains, divers dredged ponds and lakes, and the shoppers at the supermarket even agreed to undergo hypnosis in an effort to dislodge any more details about the person who was last seen with Danny. I love that shit. Yeah. Flyers were printed offering $20,000 offering a $20,000 reward, and the FBI was contacted, but there was never any trace of Danny found. Due to the intensity of the search, Bishop waited two years before striking again on June 22nd, 1983. He abducted Troy Ward from a park a day after his sixth birthday. Troy was seen leaving the park with a man just before 4 p.m. Bishop took the boy to his home, sexually assaulted him, bludgeoned him, and drowned him in his bathtub. Damn. Um, Only a month later, on July 14th, Bishop would kill his final victim. 13-year-old Graham Cunningham vanished from the neighborhood before embarking on a camping trip with a friend and an adult chaperone. Wanna guess who that adult was? No. Well, it was (laughs) Arthur Bishop. What? Roger Downs. Graham's disappearance quickly became statewide news. The police started looking into reports of similar cases in the area and found that Bishop, still going by Roger Downs, lived in the area of four of the abductions and knew the fifth child's parents. Police brought him in under the pretext of assisting the officers with the search for Graham. At the station, they managed to coerce his real name and finally got a confession. The following day, Bishop led the police to three skeletonized bodies near Cedar Fort and two more recent ones near Big Cottonwood Creek. He would tell wow. the police that he obtained a thrill from committing murder, stating, quote, I'd do it again. What the fuck, my dude? Yeah. Arthur Bishop was brought to trial on February 27th, 1984. During his trial, he claimed that an addiction to child porn molded his violent sexual fantasies that he finally acted out. The trial lasted three weeks, and on March 19th, 1984, he was found guilty on five counts of aggravated murder, five counts of aggravated kidnapping, one count of sexually abusing a minor, and was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Good. (laughs) He was- Like, there- Okay, I'm not- I'm not. Usually- There are situations- there are situations. <laughs> I, I feel like if someone is irrefutably the person who committed the crimes, yeah, and the crimes are so heinous that there is no chance at any form of like rehabilitation, not even a rehabilitation to like introduce them back into society, but just to even have like 
a quality life or bring anything to even a prison situation. Right. Like, at that point, I don't know. What do you do? Like, he's lucky he he wouldn't have survived very long in prison as soon mm-hmm. as they got wind. I mean, his oldest victim was, what, 11? Yeah, the, the four and six-year-olds. Yeah. But, ugh. So, what was it? He was executed by lethal injection at Utah State Prison on June 10th, 1988. Prior to his execution, he did express remorse for his crimes, which is something he had done all the way since his trial. There was never a point where he was proud of what he did or he tried to hide what he did. He apologized to the the families of the victims multiple times in a very like I don't expect you to forgive me kind of way so he at least did hold remorse he wasn't just like you know completely callous and cold but he did try to pull the the Bundy thing of if there hadn't been so much access for me to pictures of nude or but the porn yeah but he's even saying like kids in like um catalogs or like in books like in like pictures like in photographs and stuff like not even things that were like actually child porn but just things that like he could twist in his mind to be like pornographic yeah that's all he needed and so it's just like oh yeah ban all photos of children okay that makes sense you know yeah um and and it just it feels like such a hollow excuse i'm not saying like obviously if you're looking at child porn like that's awful you should not do that but the idea of like looking at porn makes you some sort of a dangerous human like wow then we are just existing with the most violent society of every human ever that's ever existed right you know like everyone should be murdering people if you're going by like if you look at porn then hell yeah violent i'd be a fucking murderer (laughs) but it just it seems like a hollow excuse for something that was already yeah like i'm not saying that you know no one should have access to child pornography but you know, saying that, like, I had access to it, which means that I looked at it, which means that I developed fantasies for it, which means I had to act on them. There's obviously something broken in your brain. Look, I'm I'm going to be straight up here. I see things on Pornhub and I don't immediately go, man, I'm going to do shit with my stepbrother now. Like, yeah. <laughs> like the, those, that is not an excuse. That does not work. Yeah. And yeah, that's not what I'm a, saying. Is there's, a, there's a, what is it? Like, it existing doesn't inherently mean that it's going to happen or that you should act yeah. on it. Like, there are fantasies for a reason. I'm not saying, again, not condoning any kind of violent act to be done against a child or anything like that. But like, it's fantasy for a reason. When you bring that fantasy to reality is when you can have some problems depending on what your fantasy is. Yeah, and it's like that two line. consensual adults playing a that you know the weird baby fantasies is yeah like <laughs> what you was do that you. episode of like Broad City or something like that yeah and it was when they go take care I think isn't it Fred Armisen <laughs> Fred's Armisen <laughs> and he's like <laughs> sorry I can't even speak it's just so good watch that show <laughs> Nature's Pocket <laughs> um anyway. So, to lighten the mood some, because, you know, last week and uh, uh, this week. You mean you don't want to start talking about the Josh Duggar case now that we've talked about child pornography? <laughs> <sighs> no. 
Okay. That'll maybe be a case for next year when we do Mormons. Weren't they Mormons? No, they're uh, quiverful evangelical. All right, whatever. Next year when the case goes through, maybe we'll talk about him. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about a strange cryptid first reported by some Mormons. Allegedly. Look, if Mormons can say that they had a golden tablet that only someone could read inside of a hat, like, I can say that these cryptids are exist. <laughs> Love that. The Funeral Mountain Terra Shot is a creature from lumberjack folklore in North America in the 19th and 20th, early 20th centuries. So this creature is about six to eight feet long and has wobbly legs that cause the Terra Shot to sway from side to side as it moves. Okay. Uh, the Funeral Mountain Terra Shot is described as a mix between a dog, a horse, a lizard, and a casket. <laughs> okay. Um, having, a horse, having horse-like legs and hooves and a re- reptilian dog-like head. And it has a shell that is shaped like a casket. A shell shaped like a cool turtle. <laughs> yeah, like a metal turtle. Good <laughs> <laughs> brutal turtle. Uh, the creature, like I said, was for- first reported by some Mormon people who were traveling through the area. They observed a procession of the creatures entering the desert from a mountain range and thought that it looked like a funeral procession because they were all walking in single file uh, with casket-shaped creatures and they would go on to call that range of mountains the Funeral Mountains. I mean, sounds like a place I'd live. (laughs) So the story about the Funeral Mountain Terra Shot is that the creatures lived in meadows and parks in the higher, cooler portions of the mountain range, and they gradually would increase in numbers until one day they were seized by the desire to migrate. They would then travel from their cool mountains to the hot desert, walking in single-file lines. They will all die on this journey, as they can't handle the heat of the sun. Eventually, they will get too hot, and their shell will explode due to the heat, and leave deep, grave-shaped holes in the sand. Wow. And the Mormons observed the last migration of the Funeral Mountain Terra Shots. That is, uh, that's something. That is something. I, I, look, I googled Mormon cryptids and that was what I found. That's, uh... Because <laughs> I wanted to try to avoid doing a terrible episode, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> We all got to get our sippies. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's me. Having talked. My bad. Yeah. I was like having talked for almost an hour and realizing I I drank like twice during it. I'm like, I'm parched. (laughs) Thanks for hanging out with us while we talk some shit about Mormons and some more violent, some of their more violent members. We hope that you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. Send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. If you're sending a listener story, we just ask that you put listener story in the subject line so we can sort through those a little more easily. You can also find us on Instagram at strangeunusual... Whoa, hold on. At strange underscore unusual underscore podcast. Or on our personal accounts, Roya Rampage and Calamity Casey. And you can find us on Twitter at underscore strangeunusual at Calamity Casey and at Roy and Rampage. We're on Facebook. Just search for the Strange and Unusual podcast. And if you would like, you can also find us over on patreon.com slash strange unusual, where we post polls. We have one coming up. No, we don't. No, I lied. Yeah, you decided not to. I decided not to. I took the choice away from you. 
We will have one coming up soon, though, because it's about that time. Uh, we have polls. We will have ex- extra episodes, bonus episodes for, for you all of various things and sometimes just good conversations that Roy and I have that are either thoughtful or hilarious because we are like that. Uh, but we understand that right now we are still dealing with COVID. We've got a fucking new variant coming in. Uh, and so things are tight. And if you can't afford to support us financially, we do just ask that you like, share, subscribe, uh, suggest us to a friend and uh, make sure that you, you give us those thumbs ups and uh, the reviews and shit. I don't know how the internet works. <laughs> All right. Bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See you later.